We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips, we have trainings, exercise, we do research, and in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts, and also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations, since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Hey guys, it's Alan Garfinkel, your Rock Art Podcast, and we've got another episode for you on the way. Bernie Taylor, naturalist and author, who's a researcher and uh, someone who is going to trace the development of religious thought, mythology, biology, and prehistory, and rock art, all in one hour's time. Come along for the ride. Welcome out there in archaeology podcast land. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, and we are absolutely blessed and honored to have a uh, world-class academician. His name is Bernie Taylor. He's a naturalist and author. And his research uh, certainly explores or does a deep dive into the mythological connections and also the biological knowledge among uh, Native people and, ancient, and the ancient people. He has uh, worked on a variety of books and articles, including Biological Time, Before Orion, Finding the Face of the Hero, and what he does is explore the, uh, the deep roots, really the basal capacity of mankind by looking at how hunter-gatherers viewed themselves within the natural and spiritual world. Uh, moving from the Paleolithic cave art about 40,000 years ago, Taylor has proposed that selected cave paintings are in fact fundamental pieces of the human journey of self-realization. And I would certainly echo that uh, assertion. Uh, that they're the foundation of a written language and a record of the biological knowledge that basically uh, affected us so deeply through their artistic styles, 
the religious patterns and the stories that are still ingrained in our uh, neurotheology. Bernie's uh, also been widely interviewed on podcasts and speaks at popular conferences and academic symposiums uh, across the Fruited Plain. And he's uh, joining us today for our hour-long journey to explore some of these topics. Bernie, are you with us? I'm with us today, Alan, and thank you for having me on the show. We are indeed going to take a deep dive. We're going to go deep into the human imagination tens of thousands of years ago. So we're going before North American rock art. We're going before Beringia migration. We're going to places that prior to a few years ago, nobody could have ever imagined could have been seen this perspective. That's fabulous, Bernie. I'm really uh, open and, and interested in, in developing more on those particular topics. In this initial segment, one of the things we always try to do is contextualize the contributor, our guest scholar. Maybe you could give us uh, just a thumbnail of uh, how you ever got involved in this this uh, particular specialization and uh, research domain. Well, I started this from the chronobiology side. I was interested in how plants and animals time themselves. So geese, for example, uh, migrate early or later from one year to the next. But the, the geese can't follow one smart goose. So there has to be an actual mechanism to do this. And I studied the question in conjunction with Oregon Fish and Wildlife biologists. But we did it for salmon. And we looked at the, the migration timing of salmon early, later, one year, the next, which had no relevance to, how should I say, the flow of the water um, or anything else we could find. And so we looked at it from the perspective of light, dark signals. And lo and behold, we found that during the dark nights, the salmon migrated. And during the light nights, they stopped. So hmm. the, the salmon are timed not just timed not just by the, the light of the day, but they're also timed mm-hmm. by the light by the night. And it was sort of they weren't looking from that perspective when we when I entered the scene. And so their data was basically unblemished. It wasn't, you know, you know postured in, in this direction. And so mm-hmm. they they currently use this hypothesis in how to time the behavior of salmon and other animals. Um, so it became sort of a procedural thing. I, and then there was a problem, though. There was a problem in the math, and so I could tell you that you know every every new moon, every full moon, you could find a bunch of actually full moon within the year, you can find a whole bunch of salmon spawning in this area because they spawned around the full moon when they stopped and they they were together. But I couldn't tell you which full moon it was. I couldn't tell if it was a fourth or fifth hypothetically full moon from the from any point in the year. And so I said to myself, well, someone had to know this, because how did people survive in the ancient prehistoric times? So I looked in ancient books, you know, I looked at calendars, lunar calendars. And then I went to the tribes, because the tribes in the Columbia Basin have a rich history of lunar calendars. And I didn't find the answer, but they kept telling me a story. They kept telling me a story about the coyote and how the coyote um, intermixes with the swallows. And they then follow the the, the um, the in-migration of the swallows, they would start seeing the salmon. Well, that didn't make any sense to me. And so I sort of moved on. And then someone said to me, well, you know, maybe you should look at Upper Pelly Cave Art since you have this tradition in North American Indians, at least in the Pacific Northwest. And so I started seeing the same nomenclature of the timing with animals in Upper Pelly Cave Art, as was biologically biological among these animals and in the tradition of Pacific Northwest Native Americans. Still never figured out, at that time, figured out or understood, I should say, how do you know which full moon it will be in the time of the year? And then, so I put this on the side because I did know the answer. Um, And I came back 17 years later. 
and I and I started looking at it again from a different perspective, and I list I re-listened or rethought about what Native Americans were telling me, and then I got it, and I, I recognized that you actually can't tell whether it's four or five lunations from the winter solstice or or any any solar point. You go off up at indicator species. And the indicator species for the Columbia Basin salmon was the swallows. Hmm. Um, and so I, I uh, took that that idea and I went back to Upper Pelioth Cave Art, which had been then dated to more than 30,000 years ago, and I expanded it in different directions. So that's how I stepped into this. I was not interested in Upper Pelioth Cave Art. I was really not interested in Native Americans. I mean, I am emotionally interested in Native Americans, but I was not interested in their culture at the time. I was interested in knowing how the heck can I tell which lunation the salmon would be coming up river, which sent me off in a direction I never could have imagined, and which is, as you know, in your word, blessed in the what has transpired. So it appears that it's the habits and habitats of certain key animals that are what I've called them indexical animals or semiotic semiotic animals that are principally important for some of the information that they share. Is this correct? That would be absolutely correct. So the Tualip tribe, which is near to Seattle and Washington, their indicator species was the white pine butterfly. And so at a certain okay. point in the year, the scouts would go looking for the white pine butterfly. And then they would say that the next highest of the high tides around the new full moons, when they're literally, they could get their canoes, big canoes out up by the longhouse into the surf, they would go to find the first salmon. So the first the, the indicator species was the white pine butterfly. And I've actually gone around you know, this entire Pacific Northwest through the anthropological literature, as well mm-hmm. as into the um, you know, Pacific uh, North, as I should say, the, you know, the Siberian, greater Siberia Kamchatka. Yeah. And I found all these indicator species. So it's a, it's purposeful, it's known, and it predates Beringia migrations because it's on makes both sense. sides. Yeah, it makes it sense. Both sides. So we can date this to, so we can say that, you know, archaeologically, people came down at least 15,000 years ago. You can argue to 19. I have no issue with that. But people in Berengia, 22,000 years ago. So now what we have here is we have a time frame that is consistent with, let's call it the later part of Upper Pelly of the Cave Art. So let's go with 17,000 years ago. El Castillo, Altamira, um, Chauvet are in the 30s of thousands of years ago. So it is right. theoretically possible, and I've demonstrated that the time, well, the time is, you for twenty thousand years, one could think that an idea can travel from the Iberian Peninsula across through Siberia, then hang in at Berengia for a few years, and then come down to North Americans. So it's it all works together, and that leads us to you know the big you know really big question that we had, we've talked about is who are these people? I mean, really who they are and how do we define them? And the two key words that we use are animism and shamanism. Yes. So why don't we uh, do a bit of a soundbite on what animism and shamanism are and how they might be differentiated from one another? Absolutely. So this was going to take just a, you know, just a few minutes. Yeah, exactly. Animism is the concept that everything has a spirit. So when an animist hears the wind, he or she is listening to the voice of the cosmos. When an animist climbs a mountain, a tall mountain, an animist is connecting to the great beyond, the great mystery for, by so many words, connecting to the cosmic order. 
When an animus crosses a river, it interacts interacts with a river. The the animus is is being reborn in a sense. When an animus talks to rocks, animus believes that this all the animals are not other animals, but rather brothers and sisters among animal beings. And of course, you've you've read and heard many of the Native American stories, mythological stories of people interacting with animals, and you've heard them in other countries um, or the nations as well. So of that's course. what an animist is. And the, the word before animism was primitive man. That's what we use. The word animism comes around the late 1800s. Now, shamanism is, is kind of the big word out there. Shamanism comes out of Siberia about, about 1900. And what had happened is Russian, then Russian, I guess, ethnographers and anthropologists traveled into what we call Siberia. And they encountered a phenomenon that they couldn't explain, or it wasn't actually, sometimes it was explained to them. Sometimes it was explained to them they didn't understand. And sometimes they just really didn't want to know. And they walked away from this tradition of so-called shamanism as saying these people are fundamentally insane. And you have to be an insane person to become a shaman. Well, those that work was put into a format, um, an uh, anthropological format that was republished by the American Museum of Natural History. And ethnographers then traveled around the Arctic. They traveled into the western part of North America and ultimately into the plains. And they used this same format of the text that you would have, you know, one section talked about hunting influence, another fishing, another talked about basket weaving. Some Another section talked about religion or calendars. And then another section, which sort of like the, the heap, where what we didn't understand, didn't want to understand, and thought was fundamentally crazy, went into the box of shamanism. Okay. And so shamanism became what we could describe as a academic device versus an actual phenomenon. Because the, the, sh- the so-called shaman that they're describing in the Great Plains were very different than the so-called the shaman of Siberia, where the, the word originates from. Enter 1950s. Marseille Eliade um, writes a number of works. And, and to put Eliade into context, he's a um, religious historian originally from Hungary, and he was in the same camp as Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell. And so we have uh, the ideas between those three and others um, that were traveling in Europe and, and teaching. Uh, they are synchronous. In, in they, most of them published are the Bollinger, supported by Bollinger. So we have, um, so Eliade writes a book called shamanism. And the subtitle of the book is Archaic Techniques of Ecstasy. What Eliade does is he doesn't look at it from the, these, um, he doesn't take these um, sort of like, you know, shamanism, anthropological perspective and put it, this is what, everything we don't know, don't want to understand, and we think is fundamentally crazy. But what Eliade does is he looks at common elements among people primitive man by any by probably another word from it around the world and he looks for the concepts of for example the cosmic mountain that the hero um, or the spiritual leader climbs he looks for the waters of transformation he looks for commonalities of people dressing up as birds or angels by by another word and how they use that as a transcendent uh, device to another realm that's what shamanism under Eliade was about. But what happened is that, you know, 30 years, like 30, 40 years later, we have um, anthropologists enter the scene. And anthropologists and archaeologists do not like the idea of the cosmic mountain. They do not like the idea of the water transformation. They do not like, um, you know, a common element of bird people for a very good reason. And it's an important reason. It's because it asks the question of diffusion. Did this happen 
hyperdiffusion in the last hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of years, or actually tens of thousands wouldn't be, wouldn't be hyperdiffusion. But um, when did this all happen? And that creates a serious question within archaeology because how do you find, you know, make a tree of all these elements? And so the shamanism was re, was sort of reinvented in South Africa um, by Daniel David Lewis, and in conjunction with Jean Claude, an absolute titan in archaeology, as you know, and pro- you probably know him. Um, they went down this path of yes. um, Upper Paleolithic cave art had a root in shamanism. Okay, and there are in fact animistic elements, you know, that's in their work, and they fully know the difference between animism and shamanism, but they follow the academic device of the word of shamanism. And so when people, and here's a question for you, Alan, when people think of shamanism, what what are the one or two words um, that they think of? So the common man, as well as the academic. I think they think of altered states of consciousness, ASCs. Is oh you know they, so what 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 how has a practice what are, what is the most common practice when people think of shamanism dancing singing uh, death okay. rebirth trance mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all the above what's more. another one there's one more flight flight, flight. To the, uh, and the big heavens. one is actually flight is also hallucinogenic substances okay altered states of consciousness the use of various ethnobotanicals yeah. Ethnobotanical substance, exactly. And so there's, there was pushback in anthropological and archaeological communities, in the greater community, against what uh, Jean Claude and uh, Daniel David Lewis were saying. It's because uh, people won't be looking at the first five things that you discuss, but rather people will be um, tying in the last one, uh, the, 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 the substances. And that's what happened. And that's what happened around right. the world. Because people, dancing, chanting is not as sexy as the substances. Um, and so there became a, through this academic device, there became a split in archaeology, anthropology with what Daniel David Lewis and John Clot were proposing. And if you, if you, you should probably have, John, you can get John Clot program. He's very accessible. And sure. he'll tell you it's shamanism. And he's written Many papers, and there's a book in front of me that he co-authored with, with um, Lewis Williams, and but he, he he can't actually define what the shamanism is in the cave yard, except for a few, you know, lace trove phrase. They have the the man dressed with the antler head, but there's really few few instances that it can do that. And what what the, the two of them lacked at the time in uphill at cave art is they lacked images of mountains, rivers. People dressed up as birds or connecting with birds into the, to the great beyond, they lacked constellations or, or a, a cosmology, cos, uh, yeah. cosmonology or cosmology. Let's, let's, let's cut it off right there just as a we're, – we're getting into the meat of the matter and I'd like to sort of um, put, a, put a bow on it there and then catch it and move it through in the second, second segment. So I'll meet you all in the flip-flop and I'm – I'm absolutely entranced by this story. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on, and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do 
do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code ROCKART. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Well, welcome back. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. And we're talking to uh, Bernard Taylor. Bernie, a naturalist and uh, a remarkable aficionado of all things uh, cosmic realm from archaeoastronomy and and, uh, sacred narrative and understanding the works of shamanism, animism, totemism, and the evolution of our religious thought. We were just getting into, in the last segment, sort of some of the, the deeper proclivities and theoretical constructs that have been uh, espoused by some of the most influential theoreticians, anthropologists, archaeologists, and others about these very matters. So let's just jump back and turn it over to Bernie again, and he can continue this discussion. So Bernie, where were we when we uh, were so rudely interrupted? We were at the point that there was an absence of images of cosmology, so stars, constellations, mountains, rivers, and let's say Birdman, angel type of characters, people dressed up with, with feathers. Well, I was watching a about seven or eight years ago, Cosmos came back um, with Neil deGrasse Tyson. And you probably saw that he's, I think they've had two since then. Mm-hmm. And about like five, 10 minutes in the program, they have these um, so-called primitive man around a campfire, animals running across the field, animals fly up in the sky and they somehow become constellations or something like that. And I look at that and I said, wow, that's what I was trying to figure out. So I contacted the producer of the program, which was not Neil deGrasse Tyson. Oh, he's a brilliant uh, astronomer and actor. Mm-hmm. I contacted the person who actually wrote the program, who was, who was uh, I believe he was like the thesis advisor to Carl Sagan, who was on the original program. And I asked him, I sent him my work and I said, where did you get that from? And he said, we made it up. <laughs> we made it up. <laughs> okay. And so like the, the aha moment. So I said, well, well, maybe somebody else has made this up. And I, I did an internet search and I came up to the work of Chantelle, who's in France. And I believe she has a, she has a doctorate in astronomy. And Chantelle is probably in her late 70s, early years right now, only speaks French. And we've become, you know, friends through the, through the translators of Google. Well, Chantel had actually did that work that was probably in the back of the producer's head or writer's head when he um, that was done at the Sco Cave. And you can go online, you can see images of Chantel's work. It has like the stars against the in the hole of bulls against a big bull and some other animals as well. And Jean Claude, go back to Jean Claude, absolute titan, uh, has a voice in archaeology, and which is very important. Mm-hmm. He said on the on this documentary. That you can throw, you know, enough stars at any Paleolithic wall, and you're going to finally match with the constellation. And he was right. He was right about that. And so you can flip a coin one way or the other about Chantal's work because she's actually moved into other directions. She actually she moved into the biological work that I was from my work with the lunar mm-hmm. calendars. 
I was really not that much of a constellation sort of person. I was into lunar calendars. So I went back mm-hmm. and started looking at this cave art. And I looked at um, El Castillo Cave. And I was looking at the the panel, the panel, the, the red disc, which has about 80 um, discs, red discs, about the size of the palm of your hand going across. And I'm counting the red discs just like I was doing before. I was mathematically minded. I was, you know, as um, Edwin, Dr. Edwin Krupp describes me, that I'm a quantitative naturalist. Um, and he also said <laughs> I that it. I wrote the most, one of the most unusual, the most unusual book he's ever read. Um, so I, and doctor, I consider Dr. Krupp, not to be just a Titan archaeoastronomy, but a national treasure. And you could let him know the next time you can connect sure. with him. So the, I'll, t- I'll, t- I'll connect it. So I'm looking at this panel, this panel red disc. It's about, it's about 10 meters across, um, you know, five, five meters high. And, you know, I'm, I'm counting the red disc and I'm just not making a count that makes any sense to lunar, to lunar. And so I'm again, kind of looking back on my fuzzy eyes and I say, boy, that looks like an elephant. And um, <laughs> an elephant with his, with his ears up and his trunk out. And I said, wow, that really, I mean, I'm actually, and I showed other people said, yeah, that looks like an elephant too. And next above the elephant, there's something looked like a lion. And something uh-huh. unusual about this lion was it had a mane. And um, upper public, the cave lions in Europe did not have manes. So I reached out to someone from uh-huh. my distant past. I lived in Beijing, China during my early 20s. I'm 56 now. So you can kind of put that into perspective. And during that time period, I, I encountered a, a, another titan. His name is George Schaller. And George Schaller was the mentor of Jane Goodall and everybody you could possibly imagine during that time period. And he's still living. He's his, his late 80s. I reached out to George for the internet. He didn't remember me, of course. And of course, I remembered him because he was actually on the cover, oh, the inside cover of National Geographic that time. And I said, mm-hmm. George, can you help me with this question? Is this an African lion, a European lion? And is that an elephant? And if it's an elephant, is, is it a European elephant, which were prevalent at the time? Or is an African elephant? So George and I, we went back and forth for a few emails. And um, then I, we, we, I started coming up with more animals and more and more and more. And finally, when we got to the draft, George was like, yeah, this is Africa. So we, we designated that one side of the panel, the viewer's left was Africa. The viewer's right was Europe with all these European animals like the horse. And in the center of the panel, we have these marine animals. We have a dolphin. We have a whale. Um, we have cr- uh, crabs. We have a, you know, a few, few others, a monk seal. So we have this panel mm-hmm. that all these embedded images and it's quite fascinating. And I'm still, I'm asking George about questions about chronobiology because that's what I'm interested. I'm not interested in landscapes. I'm not interested in the ocean, the seas or whatever. I'm interested in chronobiology. How do I know what time of year this was? So we went back and forth and we <laughs> basically designated some of the, the animals, um, the time of year and so forth. And one was the lynx and George uh-huh. was very clever about when George came, every time he gave me an answer back, it wasn't about the chronobiology. It was about the the relationship between the, the artist and the animals and what he recognized. Okay. So George would say that it's a, you know, it's a beautiful scene between the mother and the juvenile in which she, you know, she licks him or licks her or what it was something like that. So George is is coming Uh back to me like a poet. And this is a person that spent many, many years in the, in the Savannah. And he wrote uh, the pivotal books uh, um, in early naturalism. And so I learned a lot Uh from George and I hope I I could, I brought some, you know, life to to him as well. And it's quite interesting because he was still travel. He, he works with the, um, 
panthera, big, big, big cat people, and he travels around the world. And so mm-hmm. we, you know, I would be on the, we'd be going back and forth, and then he'd disappear for two months. Um, and then those two months, I'd come up with a whole bunch more, more animals. So this, so we, we established this fundamental zoo and different, you know, just like we have a zoo here in Portland, they have different animals at different parts of the, the park. Still mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure out the chronobiology and I have absolutely no interest in constellations, which, you know, kind of brought me back into this thing. And mm-hmm. so then I'm, I've got these animals and, I, and I'm starting to say, well, this bear is interesting because the bear it has two juveniles and it looks like the juveniles are climbing the tree, which mother bears do to teach them how to climb to safety. And I was looking at, I mean, and this is no relationship between, between the two. I was looking at pictures of pyramids, okay, just like they're on the wall, this, you know, poster sort of thing. And what the, the yeah. pyramids are telling, was showing me is a geometry that I hadn't thought about. And it was the, I looked at the geometry of the bears and as I said, there's no relationship between the bears um, and the geometry of the pyramids. But I started thinking about the geometry of the bears and I realized, oh my God, that looks like Ursa Major, the geometry in these mm-hmm. bears. And then I said, well, this man here then must be Orion and this man up here would be Hercules. And I and then I realized the horse was then become Pegasus. And I went around this whole thing and I recreated the night sky at that point, it was about eight constellations. Now I'm about to about 16. And these aren't constellations that I'm sort of making in my head. These are the same constellations, the same animal characters in the same order as the ancient Greeks had in their record. But the Mesopotamians didn't. So, the, wow. so it begged the question, mm. well, uh, how, did, how did the ancient Greeks know this? But how did the Greeks know it, but the Mesopotamians didn't? Because the Mesopotamians were supposed to be an early source. And I gave a presentation on this subject last week in Bulgaria, of course, is remotely, to the um, European Society of Astronomy and Culture. And I list this whole thing out. People go to my webpage. They can actually see the presentation. We'll all spell the whole thing out. Before Orion.com, mm-hmm. it's there. And so the, the presentation asked the question, um, how do people, how do different people have different information? But one group has a lot of information. And so we can go back into the caves and we can actually see a lot of tourist trash. The Phoenicians had been there. The Egyptians had been there. And I mean, not the Egyptians, but the Greeks had been there. And because they, they left amulets in these caves, they left, you know, their, their weapons, they left all kinds of stuff fundamentally tourist trash that you would find maybe in Disney World. Because uh, this was mm-hmm. their Disney World. And there are many caves that have these images. And so what happened was people were going back to these caves. And when they went back to these caves, it, they, they found archetypal characters in the Jungian sense. So the, the man, um, Orion, for example, could be – in one image, he, you could see him as slaying, perhaps slaying the lion. Another one, you can see him as taking care of the lion, different perspectives, or playing with the lion. However, whatever mindset you bring into it, whether you're fighting with lions, killing lions, or playing with lions, that's what you walk out with. Okay. And so in the, in the Greek world, they had a very definite perspective. And theirs was that Orion went around slaying animals wherever he went. But the ancient Greeks also mm-hmm. had this concept of centaurs, and centaurs taught all of the great heroes, okay? Every mm-hmm. one of them. And it's actually the centaur, Chiron. So we can actually find Chiron in multiple caves because he is as a man that overlaps with the horse to become the centaur. Now in the Paleolithic mind, which now takes us back to animism, where we started. The Paleolithic mind is that man and and so-called other animals are brothers and sisters. We learn from these animals in the same way George was explaining it to me. But we also take on the strengths of animals. So perhaps you're smart as an owl or as fast as a cheater or we're strong as an ox. 
words that we still use in our vernacular, which suggests we still have this animist, animistic mind within us. And so we have all these images, we have these concepts, and they carry to us today around the world, which asks the question of diffusion and how this all happened. Well, obviously, mm-hmm. people didn't travel across, you know, you know, hundreds or just you know, two thousand years ago, travel across the oceans um, on you know fantasy continents. You've heard all the stories. It didn't happen. But rather, across from Berengia twenty twenty something thousand years ago, people had traveled into North America and they carried these some of this knowledge with them. And Ursa Major, as as the she bear, is found across North America. Okay, mm-hmm. as the as the constellation, we all find Cirrus as a dog or a wolf, but a canine for sure, in North America, and we mm-hmm. find these constellations all around the world. We don't find correct constellations that the animals that we no longer find that we had in Upper Europe that we we lost as we traveled around the world that were no longer with us. It it, it talks about diffusion of more than twenty thousand years ago, which I believe in in anthropological archaeology circles should be acceptable because we can show that Adelaide moved around, you know, was it how many years, 2000 years, 2000 years ago, the bone arrow was 600 years ago. I don't know, but we can, oh, six, actually 500 BC or so. If we can show that implements of, of hunting traveled around, why can't we say that constellations and why can't we say that myths? Because these myths are within us. They're archetypes that we carry that, you know, we have the mother bear who protects her young, which of course is the, the mother bear the den mom. It's the protective mother bear that we have in our own worlds. But we also have the hero. We have the apprentice. We have the, the mother. We have the, the, the child. We have the, the wise man, the shaman. We have the hero, the, the villain, um, and so forth. So within our psychology, we carry these concepts. When we see the image, the archetype is projected and the, the story is, is found. But it all depends on what we take with us. Is the wise old man, you know, the villain, um, or the person who's manipulating the young child, or is the wise old man who's actually teaching the young child? So we take our own baggage with us, and people did that around the world. And they, they looked at this, these cave arts, and they took it with them, and we have all these, these rich stories with some common elements among them. And that's what Eliade was looking for. Eliade was looking for the cosmic mountain. He was looking for the river transformation. He was looking for the world tree. And these are the things some of them, I should say, that we can now positively identify in this upper pillar of the Kabar to at least 34,000 years ago, because we can identify mountains in these, in these panels. We can identify bodies of water that people cross, because we, can, we actually have a swimmer. We can identify constellations and a cosmic order, whereas people look to the night skies, not just as another place, but a place that reflected their own world and that, that they could, in fact, ascend to or the underworld, the caves that they could descend descend to. There are three planes that interact with each other, and that's the so-called animus mind that we formally call the primitive mind, and perhaps called the heathen mind in some circles as well. So that's a long journey. Very much so. And I think it's a perfect place to cut off and move into the next uh, segment. That's uh, quite a travel and quite a, quite a distance, but I think we're on the right track, gang. See you in the flip-flop. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back. This is uh, Dr. Alan Garfinkel with your Rock Art Podcast. We are uh, blessed and tremendously honored to have Bernie Taylor, who's quite a remarkable individual who's going giving us uh, the journey from the inception of cave art and sort of the development of religion and talking about the cosmos and the integration of the sky world and the animal world and the nature of sort of the cognitive vision, the cognitive template of indigenous people. So with that, I'll uh, segue back to our colleague, Bernie Taylor. Keep going, Bernie. It's yours. Well, thank you, Alan. And we're going to take it close to home now. Um, close to home, that is in our Western tradition, our Abrahamic tradition, and people who, you know, Christians, whether they be Methodists or Catholics, there's a concept of the angel. And the angel is the, in Abrahamic tradition, is the messenger between the human, or us, and the divine, meaning the God or the great, the great Almighty. Um, we find this fundamental tradition in the ancient world. We find it among the ancient Mesopotamians, who Ishtar transfers between the two. The, sh- the They have a shamanic character who they call the, I don't want to, shamanic, I shouldn't use that word. They have a genie character who has wings and, and also is the intermediary between the two. It's Horus among the ancient Greeks. And if we travel around the world, doesn't matter where you go, you will find a, wherever there are hunter-gatherer or indigenous peoples, you will find at the very least, that someone puts a feather in their hair or on their clothes to reach to the great beyond, the travel to the great mystery. And we find this, among, of course, we find this among shamanic people in Siberia as well. So we, ha- we have this tradition, and you had a guest on a few weeks ago when you talked about the eagle feather as being the eagle being the highest flying bird that takes one into uh, the cosmos per se. Um, I have a Native American friend who has no connection to your friend, and my Native American friend, he can, he can take his – he is the spiritual leader for the region. It's part of this Columbia Basin region. And he can take his tradition back hundreds of years. And he can travel through every person, every name um, throughout time. So he, pre- he predates, you know, contact of Europeans or his tradition does. And he told me that same story. He explained it in the same way. He explained many other things to me. And he says that Native Americans will, in, in this part of the world, and I can't say where specifically, but they have cages on mountains where the the bird will roost, or actually, the the will just be in the nest, and they will grab. Someone will climb up on the mountain and or the cliff and pull a eagle egg, eagle's feather from them, and that helps them to um, then, in ceremony, reach the great beyond. Well, in Alpha the cave art, we can actually find this same birdman character. Now, the birds change based on the geographical location of the of the panel and what they're depicting, but we, we still have it. In the El Castillo cave, we have the man who has a juvenile eagle on his shoulder, which well, it's about a foot tall, tells us it's a June t- mid to late June time period. And then he, if you shift it 90 degrees, he the man take, has a mask and the the eagle's head becomes a beak on the mask of the of the man. So as an as a he transforms into this bird man. We've and on this panel we find the same the same another character who takes on the mask of an eagle. 
And we can go to the Gorm's Cave, which you can see in my videos as well, as we have the man that takes on the beak of a kite. We have another man that takes on the, the persona of an ostrich. Okay, And why would someone take on the persona of an ostrich to, to travel the great beyond is, is not what this ostrich's purpose was. It was to run fast like an ostrich. Um, so one can take on many traits or strengths of the animals of using birds that are not specifically to travel to the great beyond. So th this this concept of the bird man that we have in Abrahamic traditions, we have it in in in, in China, we have it through the the, the, the the Buddhist world, we have the Hindis, we have this just about everywhere you can go, we have this bird man, and it asks the question. Okay, I'll 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 go with. We had diffusion twenty two thousand years or so. So through Brangia and 15,000 years or so down into North and South, South America. It still doesn't explain why we have this psychological tradition of traveling to the great beyond through the bird itself. We have the same tradition of cosmic mountains or sacred mountains around the world. Um, I live in Oregon here and we have um, Klamath Falls, um, Klamath Mountain was, you know, spoke to the great mystery. The, we have two mountains, Mount, um, Mount Adams and Mount, and Mount Hood, which fought each other over a, over a woman, of course, which became Mount St. Helens. Uh, Mount Everest was believed to be an abode of the uh, of a female goddess. And of course, we can look at Mount Olympus. We can look at Atlas in North Africa. Everywhere you go, you can find the so-called cosmic uh, mountain. And we can again say that's diffusion from 23,000 years you know, through Brandia down into North America and into other continents as well, because we have this in Australia. We have it in Indonesia um, as, a, as a spiritual place. The question, though, becomes <laughs> why do we do this? Why did we retain something? I can understand retaining the constellation Ursa Major and Cirrus, but why would we retain a cosmic mountain? Why would we retain these traditions of the Birdman? Is there something within us that sort of calls us to do this? And that takes us to the realm of Carl mm -hmm. Jung and Jungian psychology. Carl Jung found the most that the, the two most common non-organic characters and dreams were the water of transformation, lake or river, or a mountain. Okay. So why do we have these in our dreams? Is it because we keep seeing them in the archaeology? Is it because we've seen that our art that goes back for tens of thousands of years? Is it because we have in our mythology that we keep retelling ourselves? I don't think that's enough because we can drive down the highway and you might get out of the car and you've probably done this to have your picture taken against a tall mountain. You've probably, you know, in years past or not, not too far long, long ago, you probably climb mountains for no apparent reason except to go to the top. So it really asks us from a psychological perspective, why do we do this? And of course, this is beyond this is beyond the realm of archaeology. And this is beyond the realm of anthropology, because this falls into that that heap that the Russian ethnographers found among the the shamanistic people in Siberia of we don't really understand this. We don't know what to do with this. So we just put it in the heap. And of course that heap became Mercy Aladi's um, works and people's since then as well. But it truly asks us a psychological question is why do we believe these things? First, I can go. I can tell you, 
40, 34,000 years ago, it's animism. Okay. So we believe that we can take on the strength of these animals with the bird or the, the horse and so on to gain their strength to help us to the great beyond. And you can find the same traditions in shamanic cultures in Siberia where they, th- there's a dance with the horse and da- you become a bird and to travel to the, the, the world of the dead or the other, other realm. But why do we retain this as modern citizens of this world? It's a big question. And I'm going to pose, I now pose that question to you, Alan, as a um, purveyor <laughs> of many realms. Why do we do that? I think part of it is, is, is based in sort of the software of our minds. Uh, I call it neurotheology is part of it and neurophysiology. And I know that at least some of that is explored in this upcoming book that I've written with uh, Tirtha regarding some of the ways that we, we perceive the universe and how we, how we sort of grok the world. But uh, some of it just relates to the, the way our minds and our physiology are built and sort of the, the nature of who we are. And uh, as you put it, the archetypes and element, the elemental nature of sort of viewing the natural world and, and doing what I, what I call it the habits and habitats of the natural world and how that influences the way we think and believe and uh, create the sacred narratives that surround us. Am I at all on anything? Well, I think you are. And I think you give a value pers- perspective from your history as an individual. And we all bring our history as individuals into the table. And through some coalescence and contributions, you know, mass contributions, we may come to some sort of a, um, it's not answer. The answer is not going to be scientific. It's not going to be measurable. That place yeah, that I came not from be measurable, before, exactly, writing, yeah. before Ryan. Um, no, th- this is not measurable. And so how do we approach this from a scientific, well, you know, psychology itself, one could actually argue that it's, you know, I'm right. very pro psychologist. Okay. But one could argue a lot about psychology. It's, it's hocus pocus. It's mumbo jumbo and it's voodoo. And, but it helps people. That's the important thing. It helps people. So shamans in Siberia, they, the, all the things that they do is to, is not for their own benefit, but it's to help someone with an uh, individual illness. It's to help the success of the clan. Um, it helps people. And that kind of, you know, how does that mix into the world of medicine? And, you know, it really opens up, you know, Pandora's box for what is not measurable, but works. Therefore, a lot of the stuff is psychological. And the only thing that I can, you know, in my le- much less than infinite wisdom is that, you know, I can keep going back to animism, that we draw on the strength of the animals. You know, if you look in the, go to the theater, you know, maybe not today, go to the theater, but, you know, two years ago, you saw Aquaman uh-huh. takes on the strength of a fish. You see Batman maybe two years earlier. You saw um, mm-hmm. Spider-Man. So in our modern world, we don't create new myths about in the ways that the, the ancient Egyptians did, uh, you know, in, in text form that we stories that we tell, but yeah. we actually project them onto yeah. the big stream, s- screen that we take yes. on the strength of those animals. And so, of course, the Birdman becomes in that same realm, but still asks the question, you know, why do we do that? And then why do we – is there something wired in our brain that – allows us to believe this crazy idea of a Spider-Man, of an Aquaman, and a Batman. Because there's, as far as we know, there is no other 
being on this planet that has that ability. And of course, that's what sets us aside to become, you know, homo paradoia. Some people have described us as homo sapiens, the wise man, but we are really homo paradoia who finds things in our minds. We find pictures in the rocks and then we tell stories about them. We make up um, things in our head that is, it becomes, you know, this brilliant culture that we are as homo paradoia. So here's a question for you, Alan, is, you know, you've taken this journey, you've read some of my work before, you've watched some of the videos, and you're, we, we've walked down a road that very much intersects Absolutely. with your guests a few weeks ago, yeah. the, perhaps the last guest you had in the program. And I, he was absolutely brilliant because he took the road of animism as the core. How does this intersect with your mm-hmm. fundamental belief systems? You know, I, I'm going to tell you right now, when I first started writing this stuff, I had friends that just like <laughs> completely shut me down. Uh-huh. They said, this can't be true. This is not what we believe. This is, this defies science well, I, and reason. I know that. You know, you know, someone might have some being religious a, bent and like, yeah. you know, well, this be, is being you know, somebody heretical. A, you know, sort of my life has sort of been a, a roadmap to comparative theology or comparative religion. And I enjoy the, the work that I do as an archaeologist, anthropologist, and study rock art all over the world, as you do, and experience it in, in a deep dive. And, and what I see there is, is, is the unity of sort of the uh, consciousness of people or of mankind, humankind, and the same patterns, the same things you've talked about appear on the rocks that appear as well in the major religions. So we talk about sacrifice. We talk about renewal and the uh, death and life, the sun, the moon, the stars, and transformation, resurrection. Uh, And this journey is always portrayed on the rocks through pictures. And also there's a continuous expression for supplication and prayer and veneration and all of that other ethereal concepts are there. And I, I believe that uh, this reinforces sort of the, the value and understanding of sort of we have a, a hole in our soul, a, a tremendous need for a divinity, a, a higher power, sort of a a theological connection to the universe. Am I on it or no? Well, that's a person. That is a personal belief system based on what you right. bring to the conversation. And I can't say that it's right, and I certainly can't say that it's wrong. But there is this truly immeasurable question. No, and I, I absolutely agree. So Moses goes to the mountain to hear, you know, to receive the Ten Commandments uh-huh. from the Great Almighty. Well, he went to the mountain. And we can go throughout the, the Old and New Testaments. We can find a lot of mountains that a lot of people climbed. To, to, to they, they died. They were transformed on all, all these sort of things. But they kept going to the mountain. We can go around the world to religions and find the hero or the spiritual uh, character yes. climbs the mountain. The mount, this, mm-hmm. this cosmic mountain, this mountain of faith. And, you know, there's a, yeah. this, this song from my uh-huh. time when I was in high school was Billy Joel. And it was uh, the river, yeah. the river of dreams. And Billy, the story behind that was Billy Joe 
is um, he wakes up, he's in the in his dreams. This story comes to his head. Um, and he he's not a spiritual man. And if he actually said, he actually, I think he wrote a song somewhere, I'm not a spiritual man. And he goes into the shower, he tries to wash it off. He still can't get it off. And he says, you know, this song is calling me. I don't know what to do with it. So he writes it down, walks away from it. It turns out to be one of his biggest songs like ever. And the song is about Billy Joel um, he talks about mm-hmm. mountains of faith and crossing the exactly. river and the river's too, too deep to cross because he, what he's saying is I'm not ready to go to the other side because I lack that spirituality to do go. it and I'll drown in the middle. Um, and so that Billy Joel never actually, apparently was never exposed to a psychologist who would have said, you know, Billy, these are archetypal themes and they're telling you about your, your struggle with spirituality and these these themes that are in your head and through, through a second, through an, another party, I would say, I'm not going to say who, but um, knows that Billy Joel used to actually hang out in an abbey. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and he used to drink go. with the monks and he used to talk about these things with the monks, but Billy Joel, he had, he had it in his, he had it in his dream, the same dreams that we have. And how do we deal that with that in our modern time? And that's yeah. probably a good ending for this program <laughs> and a transition to the next. Bernie, I have to say that this has been an astounding experience and uh, remarkable. And uh, what a blessing it was to have you here to to share your insights and 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 wisdom and wisdom. So we had the, the deepest dive I think we've ever had on a program and and uh, gone uh, across at least forty thousand years worth of prehistory in a matter of an hour. God bless you and c- congratulations for your ability to sort of weave that story. Greatly appreciated. That was great. Thank you very much, Alan. Thanks for joining us for uh, Rock Art Podcast 53. See you in the flip-flop. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Oh. 